1 Samuel chapter 30 is where we're going to be going through the whole chapter together today. My name's Cody. I'm the pastor here at Redemption, and it's my privilege to serve you in the scriptures every week. I love being able to, uh, to, be able to do this, to be able to open up God's word and to, uh, to dive into it together. If you don't have a Bible and you need one, there should be one in the pew in front of you, or you can also open up your smartphone or your tablet to the YouVersion Bible app and follow along in the events section there as well in 1 Samuel chapter 30. It was my senior year of high school, and I was determined to start on the basketball team. Uh, basketball was, it, it was one of those things that, I don't know, when you're in those you know, junior high, senior high uh, years of life, you tend to kind of hold on to something that gives you your identity, uh, that gives you your kind of meaning or kind of where you fit in society or whatever. And for me, it was basketball. That was my thing. Uh, I had uh, played on the basketball team ever since eighth grade. I made the eighth grade basketball team and it just kind of made the team ever since. But now it's my senior year. It's my final, final year in high school to be able to play basketball. And my junior year, the year before, a freshman started over me. And I was like, that is not happening again, right? Like, I am determined. So I played harder than I had ever played before. I practiced in the offseason. I went so far as to join the soccer team. I tried to join the soccer team. I tried out in order to get more conditioning, uh, not because I liked soccer, but because I knew they would run a lot uh, so that I would uh, build up my conditioning so I'd be better at basketball. I ended up not making the soccer team. Uh, turns out you can't just try your senior year and make it you got to play more than that. So, uh, you know, I didn't make the soccer team. So I'm, I'm trying out for a basketball team. And, man, I am playing better than I've ever played in my whole life. I'm more aggressive. I'm going for more shots. I'm playing better defense. All that stuff is coming together. But the coach decided that he was going to pick the team a little bit different way this year. He decided that he was going to put a, a panel of assistant coaches in the stands. And then we were going to scrimmage. All the guys trying out for the team were going to scrimmage. And then uh, we'd wear these uh, practice jerseys with numbers. And the assistant coaches would write down the numbers of the guys they liked. Well, at the end of that time, I had made zero lists on zero coaches, uh, you know, assistant coaches' lists of people who should make the team. And so the, the head coach calls me into his office and, you know, just kind of reluctantly tells me the news that I've been, I've been cut from the team my senior year, which was like mind-blowing to me. I, this wasn't anything that was on my radar at all. I mean, making the team, that was a given. I was going for starting and now nothing. It was just all, it was all over. And, you know, it was really a, a difficult time in my life and kind of crazy uh, for, for me. I was devastated. But this moment actually set in motion a chain of events to which I went to a, uh, like a conference called Acquire the Fire. And I heard the gospel and I ended up getting saved. You see, if I had made the basketball team, there was no way I was ever going to this conference. It was, it was right in the middle of basketball season. I was not going to miss practice or games in order to go to this thing. And so it actually caused me to be in the right position in order to hear about Jesus and give my life to the Lord. It was, a, it was an amazing thing. And, and while it was hard, while it was difficult, while it was painful, it was something that, is, that was necessary for my eternal salvation, much more than just the, the high school glory of playing, uh, you know, on, on a sports team, uh, my eternity was uh, tied to that. Interestingly, a couple of years later, I actually ran into the, the head coach, and uh, he told me that cutting me was one of the worst mistakes he'd ever made uh, he, he, as he looked back. And I, I got to tell him, you know what, I know that you might feel that way, but actually God changed my life through that moment. What, what, an, what an incredible thing to be able to say uh, in, in that time, that I was actually grateful that I'd been cut from the senior year of my, uh, of my basketball career, if you want to even call it that. Um, 
Here's our big idea. This is what we're looking at in 1 Samuel today. Painful difficulty is a tool in the hands of God for our good and his glory. That God brings painful situations into our life, difficult situations into our life, hardships, trials, things we would rather not go through, things we would avoid, stuff that we would choose the opposite route. And yet God brings that stuff into our lives. He allows it into our lives for our good and for his glory. We're going to break this section down, this chapter, uh, 1 Samuel 30, in three parts to get together today. It's a little bit of a longer chapter, so we're not going to read through all of it and then break it down. We're just going to go through it piece by piece. So here's our parts. Verses, excuse me, the first piece is 1 through 8, God's voice is heard. The second part, verses 9 through 19, God's promise is realized. And the third part, verses 20 through uh, 31, God's grace is exalted. Let's, uh, excuse me, extended. Uh, Let's pray, and then we'll jump into it together today. Father, thank you so much for your word. God, thank you for the opportunity to open it together today. Thank you for the way that you speak to us so clearly in it. And God, thank you for the examples of people who go before us, who go into difficult situations, and we can see how it worked out in their lives so that we might have the courage and faith to face the difficulty that's before us, so that we might see how you are working everything together for your good and for our glory, uh, for our glory, for your glory and our good, Lord. Uh, please help us to hope in you, to trust in you, to glorify and honor you with our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, as we look at the idea of 1 Samuel and, uh, you know, even Old Testament and New Testament characters, we tend to sort of over-romanticize the good guys. You ever do that? Like, you look at, you know, the, the, the characters in the Bible, and then you, you exalt them. You sort of lift them up to something of a legendary hero status. And David is somebody that we tend to do that with. We, we lift him up. We make him be who he really was. And we think of him as, you know, a fierce warrior. We think of him as a giant slayer. We think of him as the greatest king of Israel. Even it says in Scripture, he's a man after God's own heart. He's the sweet psalmist of Israel. And it's easy to think that David's life was just amazing and he never had any issues. It was this perpetual upward trajectory of awesomeness that was constantly fueling David's life. And yet what we've seen over the last few chapters, it's that David's life was much more like a roller coaster of ups and downs. It was much more like highs and lows, not just this straight trajectory into the heavens. And in chapter 30, what we see is that David comes back to the Lord. He's been in this this time of wandering from God and, and, and leaving the things of the Lord. And in chapter 30, he finally comes back to the Lord, but it's not without painful difficulty. This moment of returning to the Lord is what separates David from Saul as being a man after God's heart. You, you see, we've, we've taken that angle as we've looked through 1 Samuel of, of who, those who are after God's heart and those who are not in this, this contrast. And the thing that separates David from Saul is not that, uh, it's not per- perfection and imperfection. Both men were imperfect. Both men had terrible sins. But both men were not those who would repent. You see, David would repent. David would turn away from himself. David would come to himself. He would realize his sin was separating him from God and he would abandon it, whereas Saul would harden himself in his decisions and keep going down the wrong paths. And so we see, as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 30 today, uh, that David actually comes to the end of himself here. So let's look at this first piece, verses 1 through 8. 8, God's voice is heard. 
uh, in 1 Samuel 30. 1 Samuel 31, 30, verse 1 says this, Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag, attacking Ziklag, and burned it with fire, and had taken captive the women and those who were there from small to great, and did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. So when David uh, and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire, their wives, their sons, their daughters had been taken captive. In the opening of this chapter, we see that, that God is moving in a, a very strange way. By God's grace, David uh, was rejected by the Philistines in the previous chapter. He's trying to go to war with the Philistines against the nation of Israel. David is supposed to be the king of Israel, not the guy fighting against the people of Israel. And so God intervenes and he causes the Philistines to reject David and to say, no, you can't come fight with us. And so what does he do? He returns to Ziklag, the city where he's been living uh, in Philistine territory. And as he goes back there, uh, it's about a 75 mile journey from where he was with the Philistine army all the way back to Ziklag. And we see there in verse one, notice it says on the third day. So it takes them about three days to get there. That means they're making a pace of about 25 miles a day. That is a, that is a fast pace. They are moving. They're, they're, they're really setting their eyes on, on getting home. I'm sure the, the anticipation of war and all that stuff was, was you know, on their minds. And then the, the devastation of being rejected. And they're just sort of dejected and headed home. And they just can't wait to get home. You ever been on a long journey? You've been on a long trip? And you've been away from home for such a long time. And, and the hope of getting there, it just sort of wells up within you. And you, you're like, I don't really care about speed limits. And I'm just going to get there as fast as I can. And you're anticipating the moment when you'll walk through the door and see your family or uh, get, catch up with some friends or whatever it happens to be. And so they make this journey in about 25 miles a day. And what, what they come to see is that as they get closer is that the Amalekites had invaded now, the Amalekites, Amalek, verse, verse 1 there, uh, the Amalekites the, uh, is a picture of the flesh. Now, when I say the flesh, the Bible has actually two different words, two different concepts for the idea of the flesh. One of them is your physical body. That, that in your flesh, that's where it says like in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, that I've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but the life that I live in the flesh, that's talking about your body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the idea of the flesh there. But by and large, when we talk about the flesh, it's this other idea of the flesh. It's, it's uh, sort of symbolized or symbolic of your sinful nature. The way I like to think about it is it's like a zombie version of you. Think of you as a zombie and it's just coming after you and all it wants to do is bite and devour and eat you alive. That's the flesh, all right? If you think of it that way, you think of it the right way because it's not your buddy. It's not your friend. It's not somebody you hang out with. You kill this thing. You don't make it your friend, right? That, that's the only right way to deal with the flesh. Galatians 5, 24 says it like this. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature, the flesh, to his cross and crucified them there. That, that what we do with that flesh is we don't make room for it, we don't give it opportunity, we don't make friends with it, we don't say, maybe I can appease the flesh. If I just give in just a little to the sinful nature and what it wants, maybe it'll leave me alone. You're never going to win that fight. It's always going to want more. It's always going to devour more. It's always going to take more. 
And so what do we do with the flesh? Well, we reckon it as dead. We have it pinned and nailed to the cross with Jesus. That when he was nailed to the cross, when he bled and died, the Bible says that he actually became sin on our behalf. That he took our flesh to the cross with him. And we need to leave it there and allow it to be dead. You see, in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, Saul was told by God to completely eradicate the uh, Amalekites as God's judgment upon these people. That this is what Saul was told to do. And, and in this picture, that's what we need to do with our flesh. You completely eradicate it. You don't leave room for it. You don't leave opportunity for it. You don't say, well, maybe I'll need this later on. No, you don't ever need anything that the flesh has access to, the, the, the flesh desires. No, you eradicate those things. And Saul, chapter 15, he, he didn't kill all of the Amalekites. We're told there in chapter 15, he left the king alive, who then Samuel uh, hacked to pieces. He executed that guy. And the truth is, the, the Amalekites shouldn't even exist. And because of Saul's failure to deal with the flesh before, now David is dealing with it here. You see, when you don't deal with the flesh entirely in your life, you leave room for it, not only in your life, but it also can affect those around you. It can also affect other people in your lives as well. They shouldn't even exist, let alone be this powerful, but they haven't been dealt with. And David, he has spent the last year and a half, nearly a year and a half, living in enemy territory, thinking that he, by living by the flesh, living in the flesh, was in control, but now he finds out how out of control he really is. You see, they, they, as, as these men come closer to home, they, with the anticipation rising in their souls of seeing their family and the excitement of it, what do they see in the, in the distance? But smoke billowing from the direction that their city is located in. And as they get closer, their hearts sink, becoming filled with anxiety and panic as they realize that this is just devastated. Everyone and everything is gone. They realize they have nothing, that everything has been taken away. Go to verse 4. It says this, Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, had been taken captive. As they stand among the ruins of their city, these battle-hardened warriors completely break, and they're uncontrollably weeping, not just having a little, a little tear come out, but they are uncontrollably weeping, so much so that they cry so much that they have no more tears left to cry. They, they, are, they are broken. They are, this is not what they were expecting. They are so destroyed and broken, broken by this. They've, they've been destroyed by it all. Verse, verse 5 there, we're, we're told about David's two wives again. Again, we, we've gone over this, but just because it says it here, I want to bring it up again. But just because the Bible says he had two wives doesn't mean that this is a prescription, right? Guys, this doesn't mean I got a verse. I'm going to go get a couple of wives. That's a, just a bad idea. It never went well in the Bible when someone had a couple of wives. I'm just going to tell you that's a bad idea, okay? I have a hard enough time keeping one wife satiated uh, and satisfied, let alone having a couple of those. Just kidding. All right, so it's just not, it's, it's, it's something that's in the Bible that is a 
description of what was happening, not a prescription of what should happen, all right? And so this idea of, of two wives isn't something that is being condoned. It's just being stated in terms of the historicity of it all. But the weeping ceases, and instead grumbling rises. Look at verse 6. Now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. You see, the, the weeping ceases and the grumbling rises because they blame David. David, it's your fault. If we would have been here not out doing what we shouldn't have been doing, trying to fight the people of God, then maybe we would have been able to save our families. David, it's, it's your fault. If we would have never left Israel to begin with, then we wouldn't be in this position. You, you're the leader. You're the one who's brought us here. It's your fault. And in a very real sense, they're right. They're right. Because leadership means taking responsibility. And David was making these decisions, and the decisions that David was making in pursuing his flesh didn't just affect him, it affected everybody around him. As, as long as he lived for his purpose, his self, his thing, he was, he was in effect uh, destroying the lives of the men around him. And, and so these guys, they get so, so overwhelmed with this that they want to execute him. They want to stone him with stones. They want to hit him with rocks until he dies. You see, in this moment, David has lost everything. He's lost everything. His, his, the Philistines, who he thought were his friends, have rejected him. His family has been taken. All of his possessions are gone. The city is destroyed, smoldering with fire, and now his men have all turned on him. There, he has lost everything. He is at the very bottom. There is nowhere else to go. He has hit rock bottom. And what happens? Somewhere in the middle of verse 6, David comes to his senses. David repents. He realizes he's been chasing his way. He's been living for his flesh. He's been living for his sinful desires. And instead of continuing on, he decides, I need to come back to the Lord. I need to abandon my way. I need to give up my sin. I need to, I need to give my life back to the Lord, my God. He, he breaks finally and comes to himself and repents and turns back to the Lord. Do you see it there? You see that everybody was grieved because they lost everything, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. This is the first mention we have of any wording or language like this in the past few chapters. It's just been a downward spiral for David over and over and over again. And finally, finally he comes to himself. You see, the, a key component to David being a man after God's own heart is not perfection. It's his willingness to admit that he was wrong. It was that he was, he was able to see, I've, I've gone the wrong way. I've done the wrong thing. I've, I've lived for my sin. I've lived for myself. I've, I've taken life into my own hands, and I've created what's right in my own frame of mind, and I haven't chosen to say what's right is right by what God has to say. I've decided that, that I'm going to live by my own rules in my own way, and when he's done this, he's perpetually dove, dived deeper into sinfulness. But then, then he finally comes to himself. And this is what makes David a man after God's own heart. His willingness to admit that he was wrong. And so what does he do? He strengthens himself in the Lord. 
You see, his strength was not in, his, in a self-help pep talk. His, his strength wasn't in positive thinking. I'm just going to think positive, good thoughts, and, and things will turn around. It's, it's not, he wasn't believing the best. You know, things will just work themselves out. It's, it's not holding on to hope. It wasn't in his physical strength or his clever strategies. His hope was firmly placed in the Lord because a, rightly pla- uh, faith, uh, a faith that is rightly placed is only placed in Jesus. That's where faith belongs, is in is in the hands of Jesus. That, that it's not my ability to get myself out of the situation. It's not my ability to think myself into this new place. It's not, it's not just that, well, things are just going to get better. I'm just going to believe for the sake of belief or hope for the sake of hope. No, it's, it's faith in the Lord. And so he strengthened himself, but he strengthened himself in the Lord. David Guzik says this, some people think, well, you know, I can't have any strength in the Lord because I'm kind of on probation from God. I, I've come back to him, but he puts me in the doghouse for a couple of months or a couple of years. And after I'm off probation, then God will start blessing me. Can I tell you, friends, there is no probation with God. Your sins have been dealt with at the cross by Jesus Christ, period. There is no probation. You see, as soon as you come to yourself and you realize and, and you, you come to the understanding that I've been wandering from the things of God and now I'm going to repent, I'm going to abandon my way and ask God for his forgiveness, immediately he brings you back into fellowship with him. There's not like this, this group of people who are close to God and, the, and then everybody else who's like out there and they're just not really holy enough or righteous enough in order to get close to the Lord. No, the, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. It doesn't ascend. It's not like you just get closer and closer and you're, you're going up this hill and there's some who are higher than you know. We all have equal access to Jesus. He brings us into his presence equally and we can hope in him and trust in him for it. And God wants to not just bring you close, but he also wants to use your life for something that has eternal significance, eternal purpose, if you would just trust him for it. And how, so how did David strengthen himself? Well, we, we're not really told exactly what he did, but here's what I know he did. He got his eyes off of him, his circumstances, and he got his eyes back on the Lord. That's how you strengthen yourself in the Lord. It, it's, it's not about fixing this all the stuff in front of you, all the things around you, your relationship with them, or whatever it happens to be, those things might be broken and difficult and, and, and seem destroyed. The way you fix all of that isn't by focusing on that. It's by focusing on the Lord. And as you fix your eyes back on the Lord, he'll give you the direction. He'll give you the courage. He'll give you the words. He'll give you the faith. He'll give you the next steps that need to happen. So what do we see that David does? Verse 7. Then David said to Abiathar, the priest, Ahimelech's son, please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered, uh, and he answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail, recover all. You see, now that David is no longer making decisions by his flesh, he is able to now ask for God's direction. And by God's strength, David seeks God's will. And what does God do? God answers him. Now, if you've been with us through 1 Samuel, you, you might remember that just a, a chapter or two ago uh, that uh, Saul sought the Lord as well. 
that, that Saul, as he was going into this battle uh, that, uh, that, that's happening, that we're sort of in the middle of between the Philistines and Israel, Saul, the king of Israel, comes to God and inquires of God, what shall I do? And there's no answer from heaven, none whatsoever. But here as David asks for God's help, asks for God's direction, God immediately answers him. And not only does God immediately answer him, but God gives him a promise. Did you see that there? He says, you're, you're going to overtake them and you will recover everything. God gives him this promise. Why in the world would God speak to David but not speak to God? Well, because David, again, is a man after God's heart. David is willing to go the direction God wants him to go. You see, a lot of times you and I don't hear from God, not because God's unwilling to speak, but because we've already made up our mind on what we want to do. We've already decided what the direction is going to be. We've already decided what the thing is that we're going to do. We just want God to sort of rubber stamp it. God, can you just approve of my plan? Here it is. It's a really good plan. I really thought through it. I got uh, all these steps laid out for you. And uh, if you would just do this, that would be awesome. A lot of times that's the way we approach God. That's exactly what Saul was doing in approaching God. He, he wasn't willing to hear what God had to say. He wasn't willing to go God's way. He was, he was not willing to abandon himself in his sin. Instead, he wanted God to do his thing. And God just isn't about doing that. God, God doesn't exist as your pinata that you just whack in order to get good stuff out of. God is, God is the Lord. He has a plan. He has a direction. He has a desire. He's crafted and created you with purpose and meaning. And as we know what that purpose is, we can align ourselves with it. Instead of trying to get God to, to, to align himself with what we think our purpose is. No, we, we submit ourselves to the lordship of Jesus. And that's where life finds its meaning. And so he's given a promise that he will recover everything. All right. Secondly, not only is God's voice heard, but God's promise is realized in verses 9 through 19. Look at verse 9. It says this, so David went, he and the 600 men who were with him, and came to the brook uh, Besor, and there stayed, and there, excuse me, where those stayed who were left behind. But David pursued, he and 400 men, for 200 stayed behind who were so weary they could not cross the brook Besor. Then they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and gave him bread and he ate and they, and they let him drink water. And they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. So when he had eaten, his strength came back to him for he had eaten no bread nor drunk water for three days and three nights. Notice the way that verse 9 starts. It's just this very simple thing that it says, so David went. Such a simple statement and yet such a powerful statement. Right, right? It's, it's one thing for God to speak and it's another thing for, God, for David to act. It's one thing for God to reveal his will. It's one thing for God to speak to you, to me, to say, this is the direction I want you to go. And it's quite another thing for us to actually trust God and move the direction he tells us to go in, to actually step out in faith. You see, David, he acts, and he doesn't just act, but he acts immediately. As David is strengthened in the Lord, he inquires of the Lord, and now here, as he takes action, He's showing that he believes in the Lord. His faith is in the Lord. He's, he's moving forward in the way that God has, has called him. And then notice what happens here. I don't know if you caught this. Uh, it's really easy to read over. It says, so David went, he and the 600 men who were with him. Do you remember what happened just a couple of verses ago? 
They were ready to kill this guy. They were literally contemplating how do we, where do we trap him so we can stone him to death? And now, just a couple of verses later, they're willing to follow David back into the battle. You see, as David has pursued the Lord and has sought God and has prayed and cried out to God, God has revealed his will to David and David is, is, is now conveying this to all of his men and his faith has turned the mob back into his men. What an amazing thing. What an amazing thing that his faith could be so easily uh, imparted to the rest who were around him. That sometimes when people are despairing, when they, sometimes when life is weighing down on them so heavily, what people need is they need to borrow your faith. Their faith is, is waning. Their faith is failing. They, they, all they see is the problems and the difficulty and the issues and the loss, and they can't see what God could be doing through all of this. And as you live in faith and you say, you know what? God has promised that we are able to do this. We're going to move forward. We're going, to, we're going to see victory here. And as you're able to live in that faith, you can lend that to others who will then be able to follow along in that faith as well. So, what do they do? Well, they're at the end of a third long day of travel. Remember, they traveled about 25 miles earlier this day. I'm sure they're wiped out. They're exhausted. That's a, that's a lot of traveling. It's just not 25 miles, but it's 25 miles after a previous 50. These guys are, these guys are wiped out. They're exhausted. And so what happens? Well, 200 of the men are too exhausted to continue. There in verse 10. And so what, what happens is they just stay at this brook. And what we'll find out later in verse 21, you can make, maybe make this connection if you'd like to, is that in verse 21, we read that David actually caused the men to stay there. It's like he saw their weariness and he said, you know what, guys, you stay here. We're going to lighten our load. We're gonna, you, you stay with our stuff. We're just going to take some weapons and we're going to go on ahead, all right? You guys stay here with the stuff and we'll come back and we will get you. You see, this, this moment of these 200 guys saying, we're too tired to move on. We can't even cross this brook, this body of water. It's too much for us. This could have frustrated and angered David. He could have treated them harshly. What, what are you, some sort of pansy? You don't want to go rescue your wife and your kids? What's wrong with you, bro? Get up, let's move. It's probably what I would have said. Usually, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't say this. Sometimes the Holy Spirit, you know, stops you from saying things, but you know, usually it's not a nice thing that's said in order to get somebody moving. You know, let's get up, let's get going, let's, uh, let's make this happen. And David doesn't do that. He doesn't treat them harshly. Or maybe this moment could have discouraged David and the other 400. We're already outmanned, we're already outmatched. Now we're down, we're down a third of our entire military. What in the world is going on here? It could have stopped them from going on, but it didn't. They continued. Verse 11. They continue on. They found this Egyptian in the field. See that there? They, they continue on to where they're going, and they're not sure exactly where they're going. I mean, they're kind of headed in this general direction, and you know, maybe they have some tracking skills or whatever, but they're trusting that God is going to direct their path as they go. And so they move forward in faith, and they happen to come across one guy out in the middle of the wilderness, some random guy. And there he is, uh, you know, uh, out in the wilderness. And instead of just dis dismissing him, hey, bro, we're busy. We got some stuff to do. They stop and they feed him and they give him some water. And it's not just that 
they feed him. It's not like David assigns this to some other guy to do, but they bring him to David. That David stops all this pursuit and he ministers to this one guy. He takes the time to invest in this one guy, even though he's busy, even though he's got something to do, even though he's got somewhere to go, and he feels the pressure of needing to get this thing done. They, they, David cares for his needs. Verse 13, then David said to him, to whom do you belong and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man from uh, Egypt, a servant of an Amalekite. My master left me behind because three days ago I fell sick. We made an invasion of the southern area of the Carathites in the territory which belongs to Judah and of the southern area of Caleb. And we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, can you take me down to the troop? To this troop. So he said, swear to me by God that you will neither kill me nor, nor deliver me into the hands of my master and I will take you down to this troop. See, David doesn't just order one of his men to get the Egyptians some food. He spends time with the guy and he asks about his story. Who are you? Where are you from? What's going on in your life? What, what's happened? And, and as they're in the pursuit of their family and their possessions, they stop to take care of a random stranger. Think about this for a minute. God's heart has returned to David. Do you remember what David was doing uh, back in uh, chapter 28 or chapter 27? He, he was making raids and murdering, executing everybody. He was killing everybody. And now, instead of living by that flesh, living by that sinful nature, he stops and he takes care of one random stranger. A guy he, he would never have given any time to before, now he's giving time to. You see, David has... has he, the, the heart of God has returned to him. He shows kindness to the 200 men that are too tired to continue and to the Egyptian slave who is sick and abandoned. Dave, I know I quote David Guzik quite a lot it's because I like what he has to say. He's smart and he has good things to say. But here's another thing from David Guzik. He says this, the Lord will bless you when you show unexpected kindness to others. I want to stress that word, unexpected. You know, many of us, kind of get a sore elbow from trying to pat ourselves on the back because we do what everybody might expect us to do. Friends, Jesus expects us to show unexpected kindness. Are you looking for that opportunity? Are you aware of those moments when God brings someone along your path and you have the opportunity to show them Kindness, an unexpected kindness. Maybe they'll never pay you back. Maybe you'll never see them again. Maybe you'll never be able to tout yourself as look at how awesome I was. Like you don't show unexpected kindness and say, hey, can we get a selfie real quick? I got to put this on Instagram so everybody knows how great I am, right? Like not that, but just showing kindness to somebody just for the sake of showing kindness to them. You see, this being a blessing is one of the ways that we open up God's blessing into our lives. Because God doesn't want to just give to you. He wants to give through you as well. And we're going to see that happen in this chapter as well. You see, God actually placed this Egyptian slave, this man in David's past, as a key component to how he would fulfill his promise to David. If David passes by this guy, then he doesn't actually move the direction he needs to go. And maybe he ends up getting there, but it's going to be harder and more difficult. But this man is a man that God had placed there to use in this incredible way. Verse 16 says this, And when he had brought him down, uh, there they were, spread out all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. 
Then David attacked them from twilight until the evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all that uh, the Amalekites had carried away. And David rescued his two wives. And nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything which, had been, had, uh, which they had taken from them. David recovered all. This incredible coincidence that David ran into this guy and that this guy knew enough about the Amalekites and was in on enough of the plans that he knew exactly where to lead them. They were three days journey ahead and he knew exactly how to get them there. And, and, and it, what an incredible coincidence. Now I say that, that word coincidence because one of the things that we have to understand and know is that in a biblical worldview, a Christian worldview, if you believe the Bible, then you cannot believe in coincidence. Those things don't go together. If you have a biblical worldview, you do not think of things as having coincidence. No, you think of things as being under the sovereign hand of God, that God causes all things to work together, that God providentially oversees everything. There's no such thing as it just worked out. There's no such thing as it just so happened. There's no such thing as the coincidence took place. That doesn't exist in a biblical worldview. It doesn't exist in a Christian mind. Romans 8.28 says it like this. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. This, isn't, this doesn't say that everything that happens is good. Right? If you read that, you read it wrong. Right? What God, what God says here in Romans 8 is that he takes everything and he works his good out of it. Even the bad, even the stuff we would avoid, even the things that we look at and go, what in the world is that? And we see, we see the destruction that Satan causes and the, the, the terrible things that he brings about. God is able to still bring good out of such things. God is able to still work everything together. What an incredible, incredibly powerful and providential God that we have. So as David follows this Egyptian slave, they peek over a hill, over a ridge, and they see that the land seems to be filled with Amalekites covering the land. Obviously, Saul didn't do a good job in chapter 15, right? Remember, his job was to kill all the Amalekites, and he said he did. I got them all, except for this one, this king. Well, obviously, Saul, you didn't do a very thorough job, because just a few years later, there are thousands of these guys covering the land. And so what does David do? He attacks them, verse 17. And notice the word there, twilight. Um, th this word twilight, it's, it's a Hebrew word that could mean twilight the way you think of it as evening, but it probably means uh, dawn. It could mean dawn as well, like, you know, in the morning, because they're the same sort of thing. Uh, you know, when, when the sun is rising and when the sun is setting, it's that time when it's hard to see and things are kind of filled with shadows. Things have sort of gray tones to them. It's the same time of day, whether it's night or day. Uh, and so it could mean the dawn as well. And it probably does mean that, that these men have been traveling. They, they've They've traveled, you know, 50 miles the, day, the couple days before. They've traveled 25 miles this day. Now they've traveled at least 16 to 20 more miles. Like they're exhausted. And so David says, let's go to sleep. We'll get, wake up early in the morning and we'll attack. And, and as they attack, I mean, the, these Amalekites, they've been drinking and dancing. They're going to be hung over and they're not going to be in fighting spirits in the morning. And so it's a great time to do such a thing. It's sort of a, a, a minute detail, but something that 
maybe interests you. So they get a good night's sleep and they attack from morning. They fight all day long until the evening and they killed all of them except notice there are 400 young men who fled on camels. So there's this uh, overemphasis of all of them except 400, which is the same size military that David has and they all fled on camels. Interesting. And every single person and every single thing was found intact. You see, God fulfilled his promise. But notice how God fulfilled his promise. They did recover everything. Nothing was found that was lacking. And it even emphasizes this over and over again. They recovered all. But how God did it was through David's faith-filled action. You see, God could have done this any number of ways. God could have caused, you know, fire from heaven to fall down on the Amalekites. God God could have caused, you know, bears to run out of the woods or something and eat all the Amalekites. God could have sent a plague among them like he did with the Philistines earlier in 1 Samuel. He could have done this a number of ways, but God didn't do any of that stuff. He did this. He intervened. He acted. He caused it to come about, his plan to come about through David's action. And a lot of times we need to see that we have a role to play in what God wants to do. That that it's easy for us to sort of sit back and say, okay, God, you take care of it. You do it. You go for it. But what God is actually looking to do is to include us in what he wants to accomplish. Many times we don't see God's plan come about, not because God isn't moving, but because we aren't. And if we would move, if we would go forward, we would see God's plan come together. So not only do we see God's voice heard, his promise realized, but thirdly, his grace is extended in verses 20 through 31. Verse 20, then all the wicked and worthless men of those who went with David answered and said, because they did not go with us, we will not give uh, them any of the spoil. Oops, I, I'm going to read verse 22. Verse 20, let's back up. Then David said, uh, took all the flocks and herds that had driven before those other livestock and said, this is David's spoil. Now David came uh, to the 200 men who had been so weary they could not follow. And David, whom they had also... Uh, could not follow David, whom they also had made to stay at the brook Besor. So they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and the worthless men uh, of those who went with David answered and said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered except for every man's wife and children that they may lead them away and depart. But David said, my brethren, you shall not do so. With what the Lord has given us, who has preserved us and delivered into our hand the, tr- this, uh, the troop that came against us. For who will heed you in this matter? But his, as his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays with the supplies. By the supplies, they shall share alike. So it was from that day forward, he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. Verse 20, we see that God came through on his promise and they recovered all and he gave David not only just everything that they recovered, but verse 20, even more. That that David actually took spoils from the Amalekites. He took extra stuff from them more than they had lost. You see, God got everything that David, uh, excuse me, David had gotten everything that God had promised, but God's grace provided more. And I found this to be nearly always true in my life. That, that I rarely get just what I need. I almost always get more than I need because of God's abundant grace. I, I want to say I always get more than I need, and it's probably true, 
But there may be times when God has just given me enough. I, I, I don't know. But I tend to think that God almost always gives me more than I actually need. He's always given me more than I need by his abundant grace. That David says there in verse 20 that this is David's spoil. This isn't to say, I'm taking it for myself. I'm the leader, I get more. That's not what that means. That's not what he's saying at all. This is David saying that he's going to oversee the distribution of this personally in two ways. We see that first way in verses 21 through 25, which we read. That the 200 men who stayed back, that David has the heart and the mind of God, and he saw that those who stayed back were as equally valuable as those who went into the battle. That, that David saw them this way. He has God's heart and mind to say, you are part of this as well. And even among David's men, he had some wicked and worthless men there in verse 22. That they only wanted to give the 200 their families back and nothing more. You get nothing of this, not even your stuff. You know that, 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 you know, that tent that you had? That's mine now. Uh, you know that uh, those sheep that you had? Those are mine now. And David says, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that because those who stayed with the stuff got the same reward as those who were on the front lines. And this is a spiritual principle of how God operates. That those who, who are on the front lines have the same reward as those who stay with the stuff. Here, here's a way that we can see it. We'll take this church as an example. There's lots of ways that, the, that this can be used as, as an example. But there are, in, the, in our church, in, in Redemption Calvary, there are multiple people who work in behind-the-scenes ways. You don't see them. You don't know them. You don't know what's going on right now. Right now, there is a team of people who are watching your heathens. I mean, children. Um, <laughs> upstairs. They're taking care of your kids. They're, inv they're not just babysitting them. They're investing the scriptures into them because we, we want to make sure that they are being taught the word of God, just like we are here in, in our gathering uh, together right now. But, but there's a lot of unseen, unseen things that take place and a lot of unseen uh, uh, service that takes place. And if there is any reward that God may give to me for what I do here at the church, you have to know that everybody else participating receives that same reward as well. It's not just something I get. It's something that we all share together. The second way that we see that David wants to oversee this distribution is verses 26 through 31. Look at verse 26. Now, when David came to Ziklag... He sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends, saying, here's a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord, to those who were in Bethel, uh, to those who were in Ramoth, to the south, to those who were in Jatir, to those who were in uh, Aror, to those who were in Sifmoth, to those who were in Estamoa, to those who were in Rachel, to those who were in the cities of Jer the Jeremelites, to those who were in the cities of the Kenites, to those who were in Hormah, to those who were in Chorashan, to those who were in uh, Athak, to those who were in Hebron, and all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to rove. You see, this second way that David uh, oversees the distribution of these spoils is he sends it to the elders of Judah. Now, why, why does this even matter? Because over the 10 to 20 years that David is on the run, hiding from Saul, these are the cities that helped him. When he was trying to move around and make sure Saul didn't find him, these are the people, these are the, the cities that helped him as he, as he hid from Saul. And so David felt compelled to do more than just say thank you. He wanted to give them a tangible gift. And that's because, like we said before, the gracious gift of God uh, toward you is not just for you. God wants to give to you, but he also wants to give through you. That he's been so generous with you, how could you not be generous 
as well. Isn't that what David said earlier? He said, listen, God, God is the one that provided the, the victory for us. How can we just hold this to ourselves? God delivered. Why can't we uh, be a part of that as well? Now, as incredible as this narrative about David's life is, I'm not here to preach about David. I'm here to preach about Jesus. You see, David is an incredible picture of Jesus in this chapter. And, and I want to, I stole this from Guzik, from David Guzik, but here's five ways that David points us to Jesus. We're going to conclude with this. Now, in each scenario, David represents Jesus and the other people represent you and me. They, re they represent us. Now, the first one is David is like Jesus and you and I, we're like the 600 men following David. You see, you are able to go into battle and to win because Jesus is leading you. That's why. Not because you want to go fight, not because you've declared war on something, not because you think you need a victory, but because Jesus leads you. He's your captain. He's your leader. He's where the victory is won. The second one, Jesus, uh, David's like Jesus, and you're like one of the weary 200 men. Maybe some of you identify with that, that, that you're weary, you're tired, you feel like you have nothing left, and Jesus deals with you graciously and generously. He gives you a part in his plan as well. He, he took those men and he said, you know what? You guys just stay here with the stuff. You guys rest. We're going to go on ahead. And they still were able to participate in, uh, in the victory and receive the blessing as well. Thirdly, David is like Jesus and you're like the Egyptian slave. You are dying in the wilderness. You have no hope. And Jesus finds you. And he rescues you. And he also brings you in and gives you something to do as a part of his work and a part of his plan. Maybe you've, maybe you've felt that before. You can look back like I can uh, when I got cut from the basketball team. And that's when Jesus rescued me. Or maybe you've never been rescued by Jesus before. And you realize I'm the Egyptian slave. And I need to be rescued by Jesus. If that's you, you can cry out to him and ask him to save you, to forgive you of your sin, and he'll make you a part of, of his family even now. Fourthly, David is like Jesus, and you are like the recovered people, all the people who were taken captive. You see, Jesus receives the spoils of victory for his sacrifice. That Jesus goes to the cross, he bleeds and, he, and dies, and his reward is to, is to purchase, to buy back you and me, to recover us because we were lost to the enemy. And Jesus rescued us. He came to our rescue. And fifthly and finally, you're like Jesus. Oh, excuse me, David is like Jesus, and you are like the elders of Judah. Jesus shares the spoils of his victory with his friends. Beyond salvation, not just bringing people into salvation, but Jesus goes further to give more gifts by God's grace. That he, he gives you the gifts of being, being able to be a part of the family of God and having the church. He gives you spiritual gifts that you may operate and serve him. He gives you the gifts that you receive in material possessions. And he shares all of those things with you as well. You and I, we stand in at least one of these five places today. Where are you? In, the, in these different categories. No matter what it is, Jesus is the one who has something to give to you. Will you receive what Jesus has for you today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the opportunity to open it, to study it, to participate with you in uh, the salvation that you provide. 
that, that you save us and then you give us uh, something to do for your glory and for our good. We thank you for it. We pray that today you would help us to honor you, to bless you, to receive the gifts that you have for us, and to be a people of faith who follow you courageously. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.